Hey everyone, this is Maria and I'm starting a new project. I don't want to call it a podcast or anything like that necessarily because I don't know where it's all going, but I thought it'd be cool to document the process or the different parts of um, racial equity in education. As an educator, as someone that has been an educator the majority of my life, I just feel so deeply that there are so many components in education that people don't know about. Um, and it really informs my instruction. It informs the way that we see students, families, our community. And I am hopeful that by sharing this information with some of the experts in my life, that we all might have a better understanding and we have a chance to learn, myself included. So my first guest is the illustrious and ever-talented Dr. Susan Hodges, but I call her Susie. <laughs> Most people do. Thanks, <laughs> Most people call you Susie. <laughs> and um, Susie, can you tell us a little bit about yourself first? Sure. Let's see. Um, I'm a transplant from California via Colorado to Seattle. Um, I grew up in this little, I don't know, it's not little, I guess, city outside of Oakland called Richmond, California, and the high school I went to and the religious establishment that I went to when I was younger was uh, like 70, 80% African-American and I'm white. So I like learned from a young, not learned, but observed, watched, learned all of them since I was little. And then that is probably what put me on this path that ended me up here in Seattle at University of Washington, getting my PhD in multicultural education from 2010 to 2015. And I studied under the illustrious Dr. Geneva Gay, and uh, she wrote Culturally Responsive Teaching. And um, what else? I've taught for 23 years. I um, love to be outside. Um, Yeah, what else do you want to know? No, I think that's great. (laughs) I think it's good just to like know what your background is, right? And like why you're someone that feels strongly about these things. Um, And today, one of the things that Susie and I talk a lot about as educators and also just citizens of the world is white supremacy. And in particular, how white supremacy manifests in educational and academic settings, both for children and families, but also for staff and um, people who are working in these settings that are constantly dealing with the barriers of white supremacy. And um, Susie, I know that you've done a lot of work on digging deep into what white supremacy is and, and embedding the consciousness of white supremacy into your practice as well as teaching other people how to embed it into theirs. And so mm-hmm. I thought who better to talk about white supremacy in education than of course, Susie. Oh, thanks. So, yeah. White teacher. What do you so the first ask? question I have for you, <laughs> sorry, that was kind of awkward. <laughs> um, the first question I have, you know, I think there is um, a misconception that a lot of people have um, that white supremacy looks like Ku Klux Klan. It looks like Proud Boys. It looks like people wearing MAGA hats and proudly proclaiming that they are, they hate people that are not European or Aryan or whatever it is. And I was wondering if you could shed a little light on what 
white supremacy is and why there's such a stigma around that phrase? Okay. I think that there needs to be uh, the ability to distinguish between white supremacy and white supremacist. White supremacists, like the groups you mentioned, the KKK, the Proud Boys, they are fully embracing white supremacy as white supremacists and like fully pushing forward agendas to um, eradicate or oppress and marginalize people of color and women. White supremacy are the cultural norms in the United States that everybody follows. So white supremacists follow them, but everybody follows them because they're like the, I don't know, you could say like the social contract rules, norms that people decide whether something is normal or not normal or right or not right or following along like pathetic or diverging from something. So everybody has those like, parameters that you measure everything against. And in the United States, it's white supremacy, cultural norms. So if somebody seems a little different, they're probably in some way, shape or form interrupting white supremacy, cultural norms, or like patriarchal norms, or, you know, some other set of norms, depending on where they're going off. Okay. And really quickly, um, can you give us some examples of behaviors or um, norms that are aligned with white supremacy? Yes. Um, We can talk about things like time, this idea of like time being more important than the people you're going to visit or meet with. So like if you're late to something, that breaks a white supremacy cultural norm, even if like you had to be late and there was nothing else to do. Like how many times have you walked into a staff meeting late and somebody gives you some side eye because you weren't there on time. So this construction of time as more valuable than people. Conflict. Not wanting to approach a situation where conflict is happening and address it. Instead, just like either ignoring the situation or trying to suck it up and not deal with it. So avoiding conflict is one of those things. And in education, conflict is happening it's all the time. Two different teachers will not agree on the best way forward to help a student succeed. That's conflict. A district might put new curriculum in front of teachers and the teachers either can't do it, don't want to do it, or don't agree with the curriculum that was chosen. That's conflict. And teachers will just do it, push forward. Um, Sometimes there's conflict with families and uh, parents and teachers So this idea of avoiding conflict instead of just like getting down and dirty with what's going on and solving a problem. In schools, one of the biggest obvious uh, examples of white supremacy cultural norms is our school calendar and how our holidays are centered around uh, white Christian holidays. Like winter break is always at Christmas. Spring break is usually around Easter that there and then um, even like the time of day, you know, school starts early in the morning, goes till the afternoon. Those are some examples. Do you want me to keep going? Yeah, I think it's really helpful to have a clear understanding of what white supremacy is and how it manifests, you know. 
I think, again, like I said, there's this idea that white supremacy is someone, you know, running into a room and screaming, hell Hitler, or someone <laughs> saying boldly how much they hate people of color. And I think what a lot of people don't understand, and I often forget myself, is that white supremacy is much more subtle because it's so deeply embedded <clears throat> in American culture, right? This expectation to always be on time or what you're talking about, like open conflict, you know, people not being able to have an honest conversation where a lot of progress can be made because right. they don't want to acknowledge that there's a problem to begin with, you know, <laughs> and so that becomes really challenging, um, particularly for people with other cultural standards where being direct is valued and kind of the norm. And I'm definitely someone who, you know, I come from a household where you just say what's on your mind and you don't need to hold back or be passive about it. And yes. so I have a hard time uh, in environments where passive behavior is expected or being direct is considered aggressive, or if you show any emotion, then you must be angry or anything like that, you know? Yes. yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, so why is there such a stigma around white supremacy? Because a lot of white people seem very uncomfortable with admitting that the behaviors that yeah. they're expecting of others are directly related and and they come directly from white supremacist values why did why is there such a stigma around that term and, and that verbiage i think exactly what you just said it's like if i admit that i follow white supremacy cultural norms then i am a white supremacist and a racist and especially for like people who claim progressive liberal socialist ideals and political views that feels like the worst thing that could happen because, you know, if you're spending your whole life trying to be helpful and work for or with others, then to have this idea that you're, you might be a white supremacist or racist is really painful and it shuts some people down and the good work that they were doing stops. I mean, that whole blame and shame is real and like guilt and not knowing how to move forward when really all you have to do is just say, oh, yeah, I see what I just did there. Is it really that upsetting to white people to admit that they did something racist? Because I yeah. see sometimes white people get really, really devastated. And I'm like, really? Are you really that upset right now? Like, I don't know. It just doesn't feel like, you know, these big moments. Like, I, And I'm thinking of a, 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 an experience I had a number of years ago where I was speaking to a group of people. Um, and it wasn't a casual setting. It wasn't like I was presenting anything. And I said, I made a suggestion and everyone literally ignored me. And a white man made the exact same suggestion seconds later. And they were like, that's yeah. such a good idea. And so I called them on it a few days later. I was like, hey, you guys, I just wanted to point out that like I said something and you guys literally ignored me. And when it was echoed almost verbatim by someone whose authority you respected, you reacted and acknowledged. And I didn't say they were racist. I just said exactly what happened. And people lashed out at me and were like, yeah. how dare you call us racist? And I was like, mm, but that's what happened. Right. And that's what you were. And I think that like, so I think another thing is like, and it's white supremacy, cultural norms, this idea of perfectionism. And that you have to be right. You can't be wrong. If you're wrong, you either hurt somebody's feelings or you're stupid or you don't know something or, you know, you should have known better. 
like just all of these things go through your head and instead of just, and that like, it's your whole being. So if you make a mistake in one arena, one time, and to be clear, we make mistakes in all arenas all the time. But like for this example that you just said, I think you, white people have a hard time seeing just the one example and it goes to their whole core being and that they must be an awful person in general all the time, not just, oh, shoot, you're right. I totally did do that. Thank you for pointing it out. Oh, so that's called white fragility. <laughs> yeah, yes. it's it's funny you mention that because I'm I'm kind of observing that in a separate situation right now where there's this um, obsession with perfection to the point where people can't even admit very human traits, right? Like you and I both work in education. We both work with children. We know that mm-hmm. there's only so much planning that can go into a day and no matter how much you plan the day, something's going to not go as planned, right? Things are just not going to, you know, not everyone is going to get the lesson, no matter how well you plan the lesson. Not everyone is going to sit down and and be well-behaved 100% of the day. That's just the way human beings are. When you have 20 plus people in your classroom, my expectation is that people would be able to admit, you know, this was a rough lesson. This was, this lesson didn't go the way I expected. But I'm in an environment right now where people seem to always have lessons that go as expected. And it's so interesting to me that I don't know if there's a disconnect where are you not observing that your children are not learning or are you so desperate to compete and make yourself sound grand that you're not, that you're not able to admit that this is, that it wasn't perfect because nothing's perfect, you know? Nothing's perfect. And I think in that same vein, like even with like, um, if you want to talk about how white supremacy permeates through the educational system, the evaluation system Mm. and how it's like, you know, you're great at it. You're distinguished. You're doing just fine. You're proficient. You're, oh, I can't even remember the other two, but you know, you're, you're getting there and mm, no, you're not. No, that wasn't good. Like this whole idea of being ranked. And knowing that when somebody of authority comes in your room and is going to watch you teach this lesson, it has to be on point and it has to be in that distinguished or proficient. And I think in some schools, distinguished is the norm. And if you're anything below distinguished, then there's something wrong with you. Again, back to that, that must be me as a whole person, not I was tired when I wrote this lesson plan. I was emotionally drained when I wrote this lesson plan. I was trying to get three plans done at the same time. Like we don't forgive ourselves for being human and give us, give ourselves grace. The grace we give our children, we don't give to ourselves. Yeah. I've seen that. I've observed that very much um, in education, particularly in educational settings that are predominantly white. Um, One of the things that I guess it's kind of tied in, but I know that in order, okay, so I'm not an addict. I've never been to any kind of rehabilitation facility, but I happen to know that the first step to solving a problem is admitting that you have one, right? Yes. And um, one of the things about white supremacy is that the gatekeepers, aka white people, right, don't want to admit that white supremacy exists in education. And I'm wondering- But that exists everywhere else. Yes, yes, yes. It's it's everywhere but in education, right? Like 
everywhere yeah. but here because we're so perfect once again, right? We're all distinguished. Yes. Yeah. We touched on this briefly, but like, why is it so hard for people in education specifically to say that it's it's there and that they can do something about it? Oh, I think because maybe we don't know what to do about it. Like it's one, like, you know, if you've got a student that doesn't know how to read on grade level, you got a plan, you know how to change that, you know how to fix it, you know how, well, you know what you need to do to get that child reading on grade level and you do it. There's a solution to a problem. But when white supremacy cultural norms are involved, the problem is so big and so outside of our abilities to manifest that it, it's daunting and overwhelming. And I think that's part of the problem is that like, I know something's wrong here. I don't know exactly what it is. I can't exactly put my finger on it. So I don't know how to fix it. And I think like, if you think about the whole education system as a system put in place through white supremacy cultural norms to grow white children, mm-hmm. white boys specifically, mm-hmm. and then you just keep adding kids to that system, then you add girls and then you add boys of color and then you add girls of color. Now everybody's going to school, but you didn't change the system. You just threw everybody into the same system that was built to perpetuate white supremacy culture norms in the first place. Mm -hmm. That's a big problem. And I think that it just gets so overwhelming. You don't know what to do. And that's why like, you know, when I talk about white supremacy cultural norms in education, I'm like, just pick one thing, just one little thing. Like, yeah, like, just approach conflict as a problem to solve and not that you're going to hurt somebody's feelings. I mean, you might hurt somebody's feelings, but in the long run, every time I like actually approach a situation with conflict, it's way better at the other end. You're not walking around the halls mad at somebody all the time. You actually like have a better friend or a better colleague. So like, I think it's just what to do is the big problem. So you just don't do anything. It's so interesting you say that because I really struggle with this as an educator, um, I'll say an educator of color, but specifically a black female, right? And Mm -hmm. I struggle with this because I feel that I'm constantly calling out white supremacist behavior or white supremacy in general and kind of going to what you were saying, which is that like people don't know what to do about it. And I'll suggest something like, okay, well, here's one thing I'm noticing. How about we try this? And it's never going to be a good enough suggestion because of who it's coming from. Right. You know what I mean? So there's this weird thing with white people in my experience, specifically white educators, where they, it seems like, I mean, it's obvious that they're aware of an issue, but they only want to take certain people's suggestions and recommendations. And I'll never, even if I had a PhD and I wrote a number of books and I had seminars and all these things, I still wouldn't have the expertise that white people would need to understand how they can address white supremacy based on my suggestions. Right. First, I'm sorry that that's the situation you're in because that's malarkey. Um, Second, (laughs) I just... Yes, you're right. And I don't know how you like, and I think this is part of the problem is that we talk about, we talk about diversity, we talk about equity, we talk about inclusion. And when you're talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, you are not talking about liberation pedagogy or abolitionist teaching. You're talking about making your policies and procedures and programs and ideas ideas that you already are doing 
and figuring out how to make those accessible to everybody else instead of doing it the other way, which is like, hey, everybody, what do you need us to do? What would make this better? So that's why I'm always talking about white supremacy cultural norms, because DEI seems to be this thing that you want to include people in. But like, let's be real. I don't want to be included in perpetuating white supremacy cultural norms. I want to buck the system. I want to interrupt those norms. I want to do something different. What are we going to do? And I think all of us that have been teachers were students. Like since I was in school, I can't think of a much that's changed in like the way the school year is designed, the way the school day is designed, how you do math, then you do reading, then you do this. Yes, there's some project-based learning schools. Yes, there's some experiential learning schools. Yes, there's integrated curriculum. Nothing is really shifting. Education is the same as it's been since Horace Mann was like, hey, let's put all the kids in school. And nothing has changed. So I don't want to be included. I don't want to be your diversity hire. I don't want to be your diversity student or your family. Or I want this to feel like I belong. And that's yeah. interrupting white supremacy cultural norms. That's doing things different. And that is what's hard is because sometimes you can't even imagine what that different could be. So when you bring up something that's different, I think white people specifically, especially, you know, white teachers who were white students in the United States and have only known this kind of school can't seem to wrap their head around how it could actually come to fruition. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting to those who are listening, just as a background about myself, because I haven't said a whole lot. I traditionally have worked in environments that are Title I, which is low income schools. Um, historically, I've worked there for a number of years. And last year was the first year that I decided to work at a school in a very different income bracket, a suburban school that is diverse um, with children, right? But very, very, very minimal diversity with teaching staff. Mm -hmm. And I find it interesting because I think when people think of diversity, they just assume that it's regarding Black people, right? Mm -hmm. So when people are thinking of like ways to make changes in America, then they think of like, let me go read about the history of Martin Luther King. And it's like, okay, let's pause for a second. How many Black people are at the school that you teach at? Because if there aren't, you know, that's not to say you shouldn't do your research and find out about that population as well. But there's there's such a severe misunderstanding of what diversity and inclusion means that like I should be able to help this Indian child because I read about W.B. Du Bois. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Yes. (laughs) And that to me is the embodiment of white supremacy. Like if you're not white, then you're all the same. So I know how to help you little Asian child because I read about black people once upon a time. Right. And let me tell you like this, what you're talking about was one of the findings in the research that I did in graduate school, that multicultural education classes in teacher education programs feel like they are designed to teach white women how to teach black and brown children. Mm-hmm. And like, I mean, I went through undergrad, I got my license, my certificate, and then I went to grad school and then I got my doctorate. So like, I've had lots of these classes. They don't vary too much. Like they're all pretty much the same. We're going to read the same authors. We're going to talk about funds of knowledge. We're going to talk about, you know, all the same things. And then you're really doing a disservice when those white women 
go to predominantly white schools. Like now what do I do with this? Like how do I teach white kids to have a positive, strong racial identity that's going to contribute to abolitionist teaching and liberation pedagogy? Right. So like the whole thing about multicultural education is really hard because exactly to what your point was that like I read a book about a black kid, so now I can teach all kids. <laughs> do you even know any black people? Do you even know any Indian people? Like, because I know where you work, I'm going to ask this question. What did the school do for Diwali? Hmm. Was there a celebration? Was there like, um, did any teacher talk about it? Like, I mean, the majority of the students there are Indian and did we, like, I mean. Yeah. So, you know, what's interesting to me, because I really struggle with that. I see a um, a cultural appropriation that happens a lot with ethnic holidays, right? Mm-hmm. So we're not going to celebrate Christmas, which, hey, we don't have to celebrate Christmas. But let's put up Dia de los Muertos posters all over the place and color in skeletons. But we're not going to talk about the cultural, spiritual, religious significance to people that actually believe in this, right? So let's just right. color it in and, and make it a fun little drawing. And it is dismissive. It's appropriative. And it, to me, really is like, you know, I'd rather you just not even go there. Or when we think about right. holidays like um, uh, Ramadan, right? People are yes. like, oh, for Ramadan, we should get little Ramadan drawings and we should color it in and post it all over the building. But like, what does that even mean to you? Do you realize that that is a religion people are practicing, that they spend their whole lives learning, right. that you just coloring stuff in does not mean that you're celebrating Ramadan? Do you right. or even appreciating Ramadan or understanding right. what it is? Okay, there's a lack of depth there, and there's a dismissive. I don't even know the word where it's just like you know. I'd rather you not even discuss it. It's like a check the box. It is, but I have Muslim students, so I'm going to mention Ramadan. I have Indian students, so I'm going to mention Diwali. I've got Jewish students, so I'm going to mention Hanukkah. But you're not even talking about the. The, okay, so white supremacy runs so deep in our culture that we can't even identify it because it's like just it is how we do things. And that's like how these holidays are in other cultures. And like when we talk about we should bring the Christmas spirit alive, the Christmas spirit should be all year, like Christians would understand what that means. But do we know anything about Ramadan and the spirit and the cultural lifestyles of Muslim students. And like, if you don't know that, how can you teach that child? Because I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm getting all fired up now. My brain is- No, no, it's totally true. I think what I hear you saying is that we're really not able to reach our students because we don't know anything about them. Right. And, and that is part of white supremacy. This idea that your superiority alone makes it possible for you to teach students in depth excellently, despite the fact that you know nothing about these children. And despite the fact that you know nothing about the cultural context in which they're used to receiving information, you know, and so I've had really interesting conversations where people don't think explicit instruction is necessary. Like, well, they'll just, you know, I'm just going to do all these projects. And it's just so amazing. I'm doing all these projects. And it's like, so is that amazing for you? Like, do your students actually get it? And I'm not saying that you shouldn't do projects. Absolutely. I do projects with my students. But I'm thinking about the cultural context. And when we talk about, like, the passive aggressiveness in white supremacy, right, that passive Mm -hmm. language and this expectation that everyone should just get it, even though I'm not actually teaching them anything directly. 
is that considering the needs of your student or is that just what you feel like doing because that's the way you like to teach? Right. And are you teaching to the white students who have been doing projects at home since they were three and understand how you start a project and go to the end and might be able to tell you what they learned? Right. Right. And I think that also attaches to individualism in white supremacy, right? Where it matters more about yourself than about the collective. What you feel like doing takes priority over everything and everyone else, even though that ain't your job. And I just think it's so interesting. Like some of these people out here don't realize that that is white supremacy. Right. And back to what you were saying before about this, like, never having a failed lesson and it's always perfect and everything goes well. And I think that goes with that whole project thing too. And the meritocracy and individualism and competition, right? Like competition is also a white supremacy cultural norm. Like I feel like in buildings where everybody is distinguished and everybody is ranked, like you might not know your cooperating or your collaborating teachers rank, but you know, you're competing against them because you get a number. So like, instead of having true collaboration, everybody's kind of like, I'm going to hold this for myself because I need to stand out. And teaching is not like that. Teaching, like all teachers should be teachers to all of the students, whether you never see them or whether you see them running around every day in the hallway and you know that one kid that's running around in the hallway, you're going to make friends with them and you're going to be like, hey, I may never have you in my class, but what are you doing? Just like getting to know kids, like you teach children. You don't teach science. You don't teach math. You teach children. And if you don't know those children, you can't teach them. Yeah. Um, And I know that this isn't something that we mentioned before, but um, I feel also strongly that white supremacy is low standards for children of color. Believing that only white children are capable of meeting high expectations and that little black boys, little black girls, little brown boys, little brown girls. It's okay that they're doing the bare minimum or doing less than the bare minimum because that's really all they're capable of. It is so racist to me. Thank you. It's so racist to me. And it's so like deeply insulting that you really think that this is the best this child can do. And you're telling the child, it's okay. It's okay. Go ahead. Do nothing. I know that's all you can do. And of course, that child grows up believing that all they're capable of is nothing because they've been in educational systems, right? Basically, you're in an environment where these people have conditioned you to believe you're not capable of anything. And if you don't have the right people at home who can tell you otherwise and be like, "Uh uh-uh, you better get back in there. Are you kidding me? I don't care what so-and-so told you. You're going to do this. Right. Then you you'll definitely drink the Kool-Aid, you'll believe the hype. And I see a lot of that. Yeah. And to your point about like having, you know, somebody at home that basically sends their kids to school every day, knowing that their kid is going to be traumatized and thought less of and devalued, and then to go home and undo it all, and then to send them back the next day is like emotionally taxing. And depressing and traumatizing for both the families and the students. And so, like, I mean, it's this cycle, right? So then you've got kids coming to school drained, traumatized, exhausted. And you're trying to teach them, but you don't actually believe they can do what you want them to do. So you patronize them and you talk down to them and you don't, like, 
they know that you believe in other kids more than you believe in them. And then like, how are you supposed to get out of that cycle? Yeah. See, what I see is people just saying, well, just let them wander around the building. It's okay. So-and-so needs to rest for an hour or two. And if you have a problem with that, we need to know, like, give us evidence for why this child needs to be in the classroom. And, you know, for me, I think as a Black woman watching, seeing across the board such low standards for children that look like me, it shows me what they think of me. Yes. You know what I mean? It shows me if I was just a few years younger, this is what we think of you too. So I, I have no doubt that when I open my mouth to speak in environments like that, that they expect nothing of me and they already don't respect what I have to say because I see the way they treat children like me when they do have the upper hand, that they right. think these children are not capable. They don't push them. They don't ask what much of them. There's not anything they think the children are capable of on a grade level standard, right? So how does that manifest? That is white supremacy to me. Yeah, me too. It is. I mean, anytime, anytime. Okay. Now, before I said that we all have bought into white supremacy, cultural norms, that's not just white people. Everybody has, because everybody that's grown up here and gone to school here has witnessed white supremacy, cultural norms. Some of you, some of us buy into it, some of us want to interrupt it. And the interrupters are always the ones that are getting in trouble. And the ones that are just like believing it and moving on with it are the ones that seem to get really far, really fast. So with this, the kids, like... That's okay. Well, we were talking about how this manifests with white supremacy, right? Where there is no standard yeah. for children or adults, you know, and they don't respect your voice, right? Like when you bring things to the table... And when you brought things to the table, I know you've brought things to the table and have been like, no, we can't do that or that's not going to work or that's white supremacy wholly and completely because they are the ones that have bought into it and they're not willing to interrupt it because doing what you are suggesting is an interruption of white supremacy cultural norms. And to do that would put them in a position where they would not be on top they would lose a competition. They might feel like they would get in trouble with the principal, like all these other things that white supremacy tells us we have to be. If we do something that's different and interrupts the status quo, what does that mean? And where what happens to my status in the like hierarchical divisions in a school? I agree. And I think depending on what environment you work in, because certain places are more Uh, progressive Mm -hmm. than others. And I do use that term pretty loosely. You know, some people are at least, depending on the environment, willing to have the conversation. And then in other places, there's no conversation that can be had. They don't want to discuss whiteness. They don't want to discuss how their whiteness impacts what they're seeing or what they're not seeing, right? And they don't want to listen to someone who's seeing things any differently than they are because it would mean that they'd have to shift their practice. And that requires a lot of work, right? And, um, you know, I've had to shift my practice quite a bit to work in an environment that has a lot of supremacy deeply embedded in, in so many aspects of it. But I think there's that fragility that we talked about where there's there can't be too much of an expectation. It can't be too much. Um, you can't call anyone out. You can't 
right. tell them directly, like your, your practice needs to change because blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. Right. Because that would be an attack. And how dare you try yeah. to attack me? So it's always to me in those types of environments, it's always based on the teacher and never the student. Yes. Yes. And all of that and like what you just said made me also think that like this whole thing about white supremacy cultural norms and not wanting to lose my place and like the interrupters, that's how things get perpetuated and don't go anywhere because nobody's willing to be the risk taker. And when like you want to do something cool and the principal is like, no, I don't think that's going to work or it can't work. Or then you call the principal out on white supremacy. Like, that person is going to take that personally. They're going to take it as me, Susie must be bad instead of me, Susie holds on really tightly to this cultural norm that I could very easily let go if I knew yeah. how to interrupt it. It's not about me personally. It's about the norm that I'm holding on to. And all mm. I need to do is stop embracing that norm. But nobody knows how to have that conversation. That would require the voice of the person that is making the request to have a, a voice that is the same weight as the person yep. that's listening. And as a matter of yeah. fact, when you're a person of color, your voice has to be even heavier yes. <laughs> than the person you're yes. speaking to, right? So the people right. that might consider listening to me are people who are not even teachers yet, right? Like if I go right. into a teaching cert program and I give them input, they might consider listening to me, but other white teachers will not feel the need to... Um, process, consider, or even acknowledge what I'm saying, you know, and, and I would say like, oh, it's so sad, but I know that that is the experience of teachers of color, right? It's not like, oh, this is a Maria Elena thing. This is, this is the attitude in education across the board. And it's the attitude that makes people not want to deal with it. Because in addition to all of this, I'm still managing 20 plus kids. I'm still managing parents who are emailing me. I'm still managing behaviors. I'm still differentiating like crazy. I'm still all of the things that every, every other teacher has to deal with. I'm dealing with that. Plus speaking in an environment where people literally think that my voice has no weight. Right. And that's, that's annoying. They should be listening to you. I mean, when we talk about retention, recruitment and retention of teachers of color, this is exactly what we're talking about is like, you can't just be nice. You have to like know what the weight of having a black woman teacher in your building means. And she's literally yeah. the only one. Yeah. Well, and I think it's also interesting because like, what does it mean to be nice? Because to me, I find nice behavior insulting, right? Like, and the reason why I say that is because if I'm going through something real and I'm coming to you to try and have a real conversation because you are either the person of authority in this situation, or you are the person who I trust to give me feedback on what I can do. And you're just being nice. That's insulting. Yeah, it is. It is. That's why I was like, I chose that word on purpose because it's like nice just means like, I see you. I don't really want to do anything with you or like listen to you, but I see you and I'm going right. to carry on. Right. And I'm not going to support you and I'm not nope. going to listen to your requests on what it would yeah. take for you to get the support you need. Right. And that, that right there is white supremacy where yep. I don't have to acknowledge what you're going through in order yep. for me to continue to be great. Right. Yep. And, and he says, I don't need to get to know you. I just need to 
Yeah. Well, and like, we don't have to even really know each other on that level. I just think it's so crazy that people expect me to come in and have the same lens as like white women and white men. And then when I speak with the lens that I clearly would have. It's like, well, I don't know if that's really actually true. I mean, like, can you verify that? Can you give documentation? Have you collected data? And it's like, (laughs) do I need to collect data on being a black woman? Can I speak without me being challenged every five seconds? Yeah. And that's white supremacy cultural norms. Like who, who owns the knowledge? Who gets to give knowledge? Who gets to, um, share knowledge and when you think about where knowledge comes from and the things that we know it's from predominantly white institutions where the men have been research white men are the researchers they are watching a situation or a group of people or an event through white supremacy cultural norms if they're researching from the united states and then like they're making these grand conclusions and calling that truth And that's not, that's not truth. That's a perspective from a lens. And this is what I observed. Yeah. So like that whole thing about knowledge construction and like wanting to construct knowledge with your students and how do you do that in a, you know, culturally responsive way that leads to liberation and abolitionist teaching is... So let me ask you, um, I mean, because you have a totally different lens than I have, right? And even though we both um, are, our consciousness of white supremacy, I would say both of us is probably a little bit higher than the average person, right? Mm -hmm. You see it manifesting differently because you, I would say you understand white people in a way that I do not. (laughs) Um, And I think that there is a, right now, um, without being too political, the Trump administration did kind of throw out this new term recently called uh, critical race theory. And now more conservative and moderate groups are deathly afraid that critical race theory is going to be embedded in the curriculum and instruction that is given to children, particularly when it comes from either progressive or teachers of color. Um, And I'm curious how is dismantling white supremacy different from critical race theory? Well, I would say that dismantling white supremacy needs more than one thing to dismantle it. And critical race theory is one thing, but it's not all of the things. And critical race theory, okay, so the way that term has been appropriated now is that it means teaching history. Critical race theory actually means looking at a system and how it impacts um, people of color differently than white people. And it started out in law. It didn't even start in education. And so mm-hmm. like, I mean, perfect example, Kyle Rittenhouse got off. That is critical race theory. So if you're looking at that case through a critical race lens, that man got off where like, you could look at uh, like Tamir Rice had a fake gun, got shot. 12 years old. Like those two things are similar, but different. But like one child has died. One child has killed two people, injured a third and is not going to get any jail time. Okay. So critical race theory, I'm going to tell you what I heard you say. It's, it's kind of studying um, the societal impact of outcomes based on one's racial or ethnic identity. 
Yeah. Yes. And how it impacts different groups of people, like the same system. Right. I mean, in ed- education, you could look at our system and you could say, why are the number of students getting suspended, primarily children of color? Why are students in special education, primarily children of color? Why are there not very many black, Latinx, and native children in gifted education? You could also say critical race theory would say, why is there gifted education? Right. So it's it's a lens that you look at and analyze your system. So back to how it's being used today is how are you teaching history? That's a very, very whitewashed, drained way to explain it. Yeah. I think one of the things that bothers me the most about white supremacy is that they don't understand how um, they, meaning people who are participants in white supremacy, and that's myself included, right? Because I'm a part of this system. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't really understand how, I guess what I would say is like the long-term effect of some of their behaviors can really change the trajectory of someone's life, mm-hmm. right? When you are holding children of color to low expectations or making them think that they're not capable of anything, then because, and this is my belief, this is, I'm not, I'm not saying that this is what Susie believes, but Mm -hmm. what I've observed over the years is that people's behavior escalates, right? I'm Mm -hmm. not being held accountable for this. So let me try the next thing. And then they start doing different things and then, okay, now my behavior is going to intensify a little bit. Now I'm doing all kinds of intense stuff that I should have never been doing because no one's ever held me accountable. And now I'm getting suspended and now I'm getting expelled. But why when no one has ever held me accountable prior to this, right? Like these behaviors are not out of nowhere. And I think the issue with white supremacy is that passiveness where no one wants to directly address any of the problems or have any kind of true and honest conflict, right? So it's not possible to grow in an environment where you don't know that people are having a problem with you. Right. Because you, why would I possibly, why could I possibly be the problem? Right. Like if you're a child and no one is directly telling you, we are concerned about your behavior. Mm-hmm. Or if you're a child and people are saying, you know what, you're doing okay, but you can do better. No one is telling you that. Then you think you're doing great. Until you right. fail and get kicked out, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And it comes out of nowhere. People get blindsided. Right. That is the yep. impact of white supremacy. It is. And then like, if you don't have any expectations academically for the student, and then they start acting out because they're not being challenged, because they are wholly capable of succeeding at the curriculum or, you know, the standards. So you are not having enough exp- or high enough expectations. So I'm going to act out because I'm trying to, like, I want you to see me. And then I'm going to do that in a way that you're expecting me to do it. So now not only are my expectations academically not being met, my my expectations of misbehaving are met. And so, mm-hmm. like, how do you, how do you, it's like a cycle. Like, how how do you stop it? Right. Well, what what are your suggestions as a white woman that has witnessed white supremacy, right, and and tried to push back against some of those things? What suggestions do you have for people that want to interrupt 
in ways that are realistic? I think that in all of the DEI work that districts do, we have to address white supremacy cultural norms. We have to admit that they're a thing. We have to know what they are. In PD, we need to, you know, analyze them and figure out ways to interrupt them. And then when people start interrupting them in spaces like staff meetings or parent-teacher conferences or team meetings, we have to remember that that's the goal and to not take things personally. Like this isn't about Susie. This isn't about Maria Elena. This is about the children. And if this student isn't succeeding because I'm holding on to this white supremacy cultural norm about like knowledge or planning or structure, then I'm not doing that child any favors. And so I need to fully understand white supremacy cultural norms and how to interrupt them so that I can start doing it because we, we need to change. This is abolitionist teaching. It's not about including, it's about breaking it down and reconstructing. And if we don't know like the foundation and where the system is being held up and we're not knocking it down there, then it's not going to change. And the foundation is white supremacy cultural norms. So instead of bringing people in, we need to knock the barriers down so that there's nothing for them to like be brought in to. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. When you're in an environment where people hold so closely to white supremacist values and are insecure about their values, what are some ways to kind of get people to consider other approaches to their practice? Well, some of the things that like... I don't know. It's probably the same in other fields too, but you know, the turnover in education is really high. So like you could Mm -hmm. have 25 teachers at your school one year and then the next year, only 17 of them are still there. Right. So then you've got like these other teachers that have to come in. So one of the challenges for what I'm about to say is turnover and how every year there's more than one or two people that leave and you have more than one or two new people it gets challenging because then it just feels like you're repeating the same things over and over again and you get stuck and nothing really changes. You're just in this constant, you know, I'm, I'm imagining mud, like being stuck in the mud and you're trying to go, but you're just like stuck. It's too thick. It's too hard. You can't get through. So if you're talking about white supremacy, cultural norms, I found that it's kind of easier to swallow for white people. If you start, you know, unattached to their personal, to, you know, who they are as a person. So if you talk about like biases, because biases come from white supremacy, cultural norms, like, and then you're like analyzing other people doing things, you're watching videos of other people. And then you start to understand like, what are the norms? What are the things happening? Then you can kind of do this inward journey where you're like, Ooh, shoot, I did that the other day in my classroom. Now I've got to resolve this issue and how am I going to do that? And if everybody's on the same page, then when you're collaborating with your teammates, it should be the norm to say, you know that white supremacy cultural norm about like perfectionism? Well, this kid did this and I did this because I was really holding on to the perfectionism and that like, you know, he didn't turn his paper in the right way and I had to go through the pile or whatever. I mean, this is a ridiculous scenario, but I'm sure it happens. I need to let go. 
got any ideas for how to let go. And then your team meetings become about, you know, how to dismantle white supremacy cultural norms in our practices and how that impacts kids and teachers. Like, because isn't the goal that everybody has a happy, healthy, strong quality of life with strong, positive identity develop identities and like we grow them and how do we do that? And we can't do that if we don't understand. You know, I don't know that that is the goal. And I'll be really oh. honest that I, I and I, this is just my observation, um, particularly in relation to white supremacy, that I don't think people's goal is balance. I really don't. I've witnessed a lot of people who brag about how imbalanced their lives are. And it's almost like a, a, a badge of honor to, to say, look at how imbalanced my life is. Like, look at how much more work I do than you. Look at how much better a teacher I am than you are because I worked Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night and you didn't. So guess what? I'm a better teacher. Yeah. Right? And like, sure. I mean, if you want that bad, take it. But I'm going to tell you that it doesn't necessarily impact the quality of instruction. You just have more material ready because the individualism that is connected to white supremacy, where you're planning what you want to plan based on yourself and your ideals and your personal interests, that is always present, right? And so this like commitment to imbalance where they're doing tons and tons and tons of work just to say they did, it's not for the kids. It's not because they care so much about the children. It's because they want to be the one to say they did it. And they want to put their ideals and what they value onto the kids. Like mm -hmm. I really feel strongly about climate change. So we're going to talk about all this stuff about, you know, climate change and we're going to plant gardens and we're going to like put don't idle in the parking lot signs. And we're going to do all these things. <laughs> and like the kids are like, I don't, I don't even understand why we're yeah. doing this. Yeah. And I also, in, in closing, I think one of the things that is so, 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 so important to me that I think a lot of white teachers don't understand is, and, and, and forgive me if I say it in a way that might not sound um, politically correct, but uh -huh. there's a lot of really fluffy education happening. And if you are a white child, you have the privilege of not knowing basics standard, common core standard for literacy, common core standard for math. And you'll still get ahead because mommy yeah. and daddy get me tutoring and I get to do blah, 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 right? Like not everyone has those resources. Not everyone has access to that information. Mm -hmm. And we, by not giving kids core instruction, reading and writing, explicit instruction, we are doing them a major disservice and allowing them to slip behind because- right. This is not the environment where everyone is starting from the same playing field. You know what I mean? Not everything is leveled, right? And when right. we talk about equity, when we talk about making sure there is equity in education, we have to do what we can to make sure that we're getting everyone somewhere around the same place, which means we need to make sure that we teach the basics first. Sure, let's go on to like what you were talking about, you know, some parking lot project that says don't idle or anything like that. But I'm saying that like a big chunk of the kids can't even access that concept yes. because you still haven't taught them how to read and write. Yes. Yes. So like, again, the individualism, putting our own interests over the children's well-being and their future and like the trajectory that not teaching them 
that information puts them on, you know, mm-hmm. to me, it really is so upsetting to watch because people yeah. don't realize how hurtful that is to children that can't get the year they had with you back. Right. Yes. And even in like this, like, I don't know why I thought of this when you said that, but this whole like jumping back into school, like nothing ever happened. Like we didn't just have 18 months of quarantine and just jumping right back in is, I feel like it's a parallel example. Like what can we possibly do if we're ignoring the fact that we're all traumatized and we're all tired, kids and teachers? And how are we going to get kids back on track if all we want to do is like read to them and not teach them how to read themselves or, you know, not making sure that when they were at home, they're actually, they got what they needed from that year so we can move forward. Well, Susie, it has been amazing. I know there's a lot of other stuff for us to discuss, but this is just the beginning, right? And um, to those that are listening to us, I want you to know Susie is my co-pilot. So she'll be making appearances from time to time when we talk to other people who are working in education to establish equity and really fight for norms that are outside of white supremacy. But I thought it was important for us to first have this discussion because so much of what we'll be discussing thereafter is based on pushing against white supremacy. Yes. Yay. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye.